Thank you, ladies. Also, special thanks to Desiree for serving in our worship team. This is her last Sunday here as their family's moving on. And so, glad for the way that you've served us these years. As we turn to God's Word this morning, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. As we journey through our series this fall, looking at what does the Bible say about various hot topics, and here this morning we're looking at what does the Bible say as it comes to racial reconciliation. And this indeed continues to be a pertinent issue after the first service this morning. I had two people who came up to me, not much older than me, who said to me, you know, said, you know I grew up in a church that had rows for black people and had rows for white people in our church. Another person said to me, I was worshiping with the three civil rights workers in Mississippi on the morning, but that they were killed. Um, So we come to this passage here. We come looking at what does the Bible say about racial reconciliation. Let us pray for God's blessing on his word this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We do pray that the light of your gospel would shine in this place and shine in our hearts, that you would move us to see not only the blessings of the gospel, but the purpose of the gospel and the mission of the gospel and that this mystery would be made clear to us and in us and through us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Reconciler, we pray. Amen. This past summer at our annual denominational meeting, it's called our General Assembly, which happened to be in Chattanooga this past year, I experienced and witnessed one of the most powerful workings of the Holy Spirit I have ever witnessed in my life. And indeed, afterwards, the clerk of the, of the PCA, of our denomination, um, who his role is he's, a, he's our denominational administrator, he made this comment. He said, I have attended every General Assembly the PCA has ever had. In my opinion, the periods of prayer and expression of repentance and brotherly love on the Thursday evening session of the 2015 General Assembly were the most evident and powerful work of the Holy Spirit at any PCA assembly here to four. Well, what was that issue? What was that issue was something <clears throat> that is so central to the gospel that if it fails to occur, it denies the very heart of the gospel itself. It is something that for the Apostle Paul, that he felt that if he did not preach and teach and live out this thing, he would be denying a very purpose for why Jesus Christ came to this earth. It's an issue that is so controversial that when you read in the New Testament about riots and, and opposition to the church, that the primary reason why that occurred was this issue that we're dealing with here today. It's an issue that's commonly misunderstood. It is because of this issue that the Apostle Paul was thrown into prison. You see, there's this misconception about the tumultuousness of the New Testament and the riots that Paul experienced in his life. There is this misconception that if you ask most Bible-believing Christians, why was Paul thrown into prison, they would answer, Paul was thrown into prison because he preached the gospel. And they would be wrong. Yes, I said, if you ask most Christians, why was Paul thrown into prison, they would say, Paul was thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, and they would be wrong. Why? Because this is why Paul says he was thrown into prison. Ephesians chapter 6. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, 
that words may be given to, me, given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It was because of the mystery of the gospel that Paul was thrown into prison. Now, this is not just some little play on words. This is not just this cute thing that preachers do to say, ha, gotcha. But rather, this was a fundamental issue. Because the gospel is not just words that are proclaimed, but a life that is lived. And it was this issue, not the gospel itself. People were rather receptive to the gospel. But it was the implications of the gospel that created riots and revolt throughout Asia Minor and for the, for the Christian churches. How do we know this? Because it is, Paul says here, it is the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And he says, pray for me that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, well, what is the mystery of the gospel? Well, he spends the book of Ephesians describing what the mystery of the gospel is, beginning in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, which is most every one of us in this room, therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Therefore, remember... um, Excuse me. There we go. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both... Who's the both? Jews and Gentiles, different races, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that is racial hatred and the relationship estrangement from God, by abolishing the laws of commandments and expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Who are the two? Jews and Gentiles. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and he preached peace to you who were far off. Who's that? Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Who's that? The Jews. For for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Continue with me. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus 
through the gospel. This is the mystery of the gospel, and that is the reason why the Apostle Paul was thrown into prison. As we look at this issue, we're going to look at three things to help us understand this passage. First off, we're going to understand the revelation of the mystery. Secondly, the nature of the mystery and the challenges to living out the mystery of the gospel. To begin with, let's look at the revelation of the mystery. He says in chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. What is Paul identifying here? Well, he is recognizing that the mystery of the gospel was made known to previous generations. But now there has been a fuller understanding, a fuller revelation of the mystery of the gospel being worked out now. Well, to understand that, it helps us to know what was the mystery of the gospel that was known in previous generations. Well, the biblical storyline works like, goes like this. At creation, God created the world and created the male and female. Adam and Eve, each one of them, instead of living for the Lord, turned and centered their lives upon themselves. As they centered their lives upon themselves instead of on God, they fell away from his grace, brokenness, sin, corruption entered into this world. The very first expression of the brokenness and the fallenness of this world is there was relational brokenness between Adam and Eve and then between their children as Cain kills his brother Abel. The wickedness of men continues to spread across the earth. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. He gives a flood, wipes them out, saves Noah and his family. However, wickedness in the earth continued. Why? Because sin also went onto the ark in Noah. So Noah comes, he repopulates the earth. And what happens then, we're in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. The wickedness on the earth spreads. We get to the story of the Tower of Babel. There at the Tower of Babel, people are building a monument to themselves and saying, hey, look how great we are, look how big we are, look how tough we are, look how godlike we are. God comes down, scatters the languages, gives them different languages. What happens? They scatter across the face of the earth as different language groups. Now, for a student of Scripture, there should be a question that you should ask if you're reading Genesis and you get to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. The question you should ask is, how are all these people going to come to know God? Because they started in the garden being in a relationship with God, and now at Babel, there are different language groups that are now being spread across the face of the earth. How are all these people going to be restored into a right relationship with him? How are all these nations and languages going to come to know who God is and what God has done? The answer is Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham. It's the very next thing. And God says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just Abraham's family? No. Through him all of the families of the earth. That a promise is given to Abraham and to his descendants a promise, but that promise had a purpose. And the purpose was so that all the families of the earth, all of the nations would be blessed and come and be restored in their relationship with God. Now, the story of the rest of the Old Testament is what happened is that the people of God, the Israelites in particular, they remembered that God gave them a promise, but they forgot the purpose. They said, God, we want you to bless us, but we're not going to do you the mission that you've given to us. We're not going to fulfill the purpose for why you bless us. And the reason why you bless us is so that we would be a blessing to others so that the nations would come to know God. So over the course of the rest of the Old Testament, you see glimpses of this truth beginning and expanding. 
you see at the formation of the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 12 in the Passover. Who was the Passover for? People say, well, it was the Israelites who were in Egypt. That's partially true. But in Exodus chapter 12, it says, and for all others who had joined themselves in the people of God, there is one promise for both of them, is what Exodus chapter 12 says. And then after this, it continues. And you see that God says to them that he's giving them the land of Israel. Palestine, the land of Israel, uh, you know, was promised to be a land flowing in milk and honey. Israel has never been a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land flowing with dust and with rocks. Milk and honey being a word for meaning abundance and prosperity. So what is the land of Israel? It happens to be at the intersection of three different continents. So those people are traveling from Africa to Asia and Europe to Africa and all over as the intersection of three different continents of the entire known world. As they cross through the people of God, that they would see God and come to know God and experience God through the people of God that the blessings that God would give to them would be extended to the nations. And you see other things like other aspects of this in the Old Testament. You see Jonah going to the Assyrians to call them to faith and repentance. You see the prophet Isaiah, God declaring through them, saying, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, blessed be my people, Egypt, blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Wait a second, I thought the people of Israel were God's people. It says here, blessed be Egypt, my people and Assyria who are my people. And then he says in other places in Isaiah, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of you and will keep you and be a covenant to the people and a light for the Gentiles. I am blessing you. Why? So that you would be a blessing. So that the nations would be joined into the covenantal promises. So the promise that I give to you that other people would experience that and come to know God. See it in Ezra. After the people are being brought back from exile, it says this. They celebrate a Passover feast. Who's it for? So the Israelites who had returned from exile ate it, and not just them, together with all, that is non-Israelites, who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? So that the nations would come to know God's blessing through his promises. As that part of the mystery has always been there. Now, some people say, well, what about interracial marriages and the prohibitions in the Old Testament interracial marriages? The issue there was religious purity, not racial purity. You see it in a couple ways. One, Moses married two foreign women. You see it in the book of Ruth. You see it in the lineage of Jesus, of how many people are Gentiles who are brought in to the covenant promises of God. Okay, well, given that, if that's the revelation that was known beforehand, what has been made known now? And stay with me. As I know this is a little bit tedious, but stay with me. Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3. The mis- this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So then you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Prior to this, the understanding of the Jews is that Gentiles were allowed, but they weren't given an inheritance. They were allowed, but they were second-class citizens. They were never, would, could never be an heir. And when you consider the animosity between Jews and Gentiles, never, never has there been a greater racial tension and racial hatred than between Jews and Gentiles. Paul references here in Ephesians about how Gentiles were referred to as the uncircumcised. Jews, when they would refer to a Gentile, they would call them the uncircumcised, and then they would spit out of disgust 
And Jews, oftentimes, and in many places in the world today, are treated as subhuman. Never has there been animosity between races as much as there has been between the Jews and everybody else. But what is Paul saying? Saying now, through Jesus Christ, the promises to the people of Israel are now extended to Gentiles. And these uncircumcised spit Gentiles now can have the same status, the same citizenship, the same inheritance, the same blessing as Jews. The significance here is that there is full reconciliation between races, social class, or anything else that would stand or divide God's people. The mystery of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to bring about full reconciliation between all the races in this world through Jesus Christ. That is the revelation of the mystery. Let's take a look at the nature of the mystery of the gospel. And it begs the question, what is, re- what is reconciliation? What is the reconciliation Paul's talking about here in this passage? Well, to begin with, let's be clear what reconciliation through Christ is not. Is that reconciliation through Christ is not homogenization. This would be seen in white homogeneity. This would be seen in black Afrocentricity, for example. An experience of this in my own life was when I was involved with InterVarsity at St. Mary's College. Um, what would happen is that InterVarsity and Gospel Choir met at the same night and in the same building. And we would walk over together. And then what happened was we walked through the doors of the building, all the black people would go to the left and all the white people would go to the right for their different worship services. Homogenous services. Homogenous things of worship. The leader of the gospel choir and myself said, this isn't right. We're going to do something about this. So we started joining these things together. Why? Because Christ has removed the dividing wall and we needed to be united. This is a big issue. In the 20th century in America, which has also affected global missions and global thoughts about missions, the dominant thought in teaching about church planting and reaching people in America was that the way that you do it is you focus on planting and starting homogenous churches. And the idea being that you have a higher rate of conversion growth. People feel at home. People want to go to church with people who are like them. They want to go... People. You want someone, the idea is that you want someone to walk into church and to say, yeah, these are our kinds of people. These are people like me. And people, quote, don't like to become Christian. People like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Let me give you a tangible example of this. There's a church in our community here that has stated that there is a very particular de- demographic that their church is seeking to reach. And if you are not in that demographic, you are told, we're glad that you're here. We'd love to have you worship with us. We just want to be upright and forthright with you. You will not have any leadership position in our church. Period. Because you don't hit the homogenous demographic. What does Scripture say about that? I believe what Scripture teaches is that Jesus Christ didn't come to this earth and die on the cross so that Christians could rebuild the dividing wall which Jesus Christ himself has destroyed. Reconciliation is not homogenization. Secondly, reconciliation is not separation. I grew up in a church in Landover Hills, Maryland, that in the 50s and 60s was a, existed in a covenant white-only neighborhoods. The church was a 1,200-person congregation. When desegregation went through, the pastor of the church very courageously stood up before a 1,200-person congregation and said, you know all of our covenant white-only neighborhoods have been invalidated. Our neighborhoods are integrating. When you see a person of a different race move into your neighborhood, you are to go up to them and introduce yourself to them and invite them into your house for dinner, and you are to invite them into our church for worship. The next Sunday, half of the congregation walked out of church. 
What happened? They picked up and they moved to Bowie. But do you know what happened in Bowie? Black people came to Bowie too. <laughs> right? And then after Bowie, they moved to Crofton, and then they moved to Burtonsville, and eventually they fell into the Chesapeake Bay. Um, <laughs> but, but truly, there were four, church, four churches that were planted in white flight in order to preserve racial, racial separation within racial separation in worship. This here is the issue that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians. What's happening, you got the church in Galatia, but the people who had Jewish customs ate over here, and they wouldn't eat with the pe- people over here who practiced Gentile customs. And Paul says, no, if you all, all of you who are professing Christ, and you are also professing that you need to be separated, you are professing a false gospel. Reconciliation is not separation. Third thing, reconciliation is not merely integra- integration. You can walk into most any high school in our country which is integrated. And what you will see is that you will see a lunchroom that has tables of black students and other tables of white students and other tables of Asian students. They're integrated, but there has not been reconciliation. Except, dare I say, not exclusively, but dare I say, except when the gospel is at work. Earlier this year, Israel Sam, who works with InterVarsity at St. Mary's College, said to me, he shared with me this story. He said one of the administrators from the college um, was walking through the dining hall and saw a picture of um, students of different races and ethnicity all having lunch together. And he took a picture of those students and he showed it to Israel and he says, this is such the St. Mary's experience. This is so St. Mary's. And Israel looks at the picture and goes, oh, those are all my university students. (laughs) What happened? is that the, the gospel is tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that people are joining together. And at St. Mary's College, InterVarsity is not only the most racially, ethnically, and soci- it is the most racially, ethnically, and socioeconomically diverse group on, student group on campus. It's also one of the largest student groups on campus. Reconciliation is not merely integration. What is it then? Reconciliation is joining together as one family. As a family. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace. Who's ours? Ours, Jews and Gentiles, who has made us both one. Jews and Gentiles, different races, joined together as one. He has broken down in his flesh. How did he do it? By the tearing down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God, both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He says that he might create in himself one new man. Paul is speaking to Jews. For the Jews, there are only two types of people, Jews and non-Jews. There are only two races. And Paul says, no, through Christ there is one race, and that race is Christian. There is one thing that unites you together, and that is Jesus Christ. And he has made you one new man joined together instead of two. It was for this reason in the second century, early Christians didn't call each other by their last name. They only called each other by their first name. And the reason why was because your, na- your last name showed what class you were a part of, what your ethnic descent was, and whether you were freed or slave. And the Christians said no. We are one in Christ, and we are one new man, members of the same household. These social divisions do not apply, for we are united through Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Household. 
You know, I've got, I, I love my friends. I have a different level of obligation for my family members than I do for my friends. I will do a lot for my friends. I really will. But there is a different level of how much I put up with people for those who are in my household than those who are my friends. Right? I mean, those who are in your household, you are called to a different level of perseverance, a different level of love, a different level of reconciliation than you are called to outside of that. And Paul is saying, listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are joined together, Jews and Gentiles, as one household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together. Who's joined together? Jews and Gentiles different races joined together as one household grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you also, who's you? You Gentiles, most of us in this room, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear all these descriptions of unity? Of how all of these racial and cultural things are torn apart and joined together into one household with friendship and trust and a common mission and mutual submission and perseverance and love and loyalty and faithfulness, not primarily to your racial heritage, but primarily to your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ as a new people. What's an image that this works? People have tried to come up with different ones. I don't particularly like the melting pot image, which means that, you know, everyone kind of loses their distinction and just comes this homogenous, blenderized soup. I like texture, sorry. Um, You know, it's not simply a salad where you have completely distinct elements put together. A better image is probably a stew where you have distinct elements but are flavoring one another and enhancing one another, if if you want a picture of that that the nature of the mystery is that, rec- is, there, is that there is reconciliation where people, of different recon- where people of different races join together in one household with love, with trust, with mutual submission through Jesus Christ who has made us brothers and sisters adopted into his family where there's true love, true relationship, true friendship. How do you know when that happens? It happens when you see people talk to each other and they don't refer to one another as, oh, this is my white friend, or oh, this is my black friend, or oh, this is my Chinese friend, but quite simply, this is my friend who was my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. End of story. It's the nature of the mystery. Let's take a look at the challenges to the mystery of the gospel getting worked out in us. Huge challenge today is ignorance. Quite simply, the utter, the lack of awareness of how deeply divided our society is. Most white people believe that we live in a post-racial society. Most white people believe that the issues of race were things of 50 years ago. And when it comes to these issues of race and discussion, and as white people, many white people, when they look at the news and they watch the news and they hear about Ferguson and Baltimore, they're like, I don't get this. Why is this still an issue? Wasn't this dealt with like in the 50s? It's a lack of awareness. It demonstrates a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding, and yes, even a lack of compassion for our brothers and sisters. If you want to get a picture of how deeply divided our society is, go to factfinder.gov, click on race, and click on maps for a given zip code. If you do that here in Southern Maryland, you will see sharp lines between where the white people, the black people, and the Hispanic people live. Sharp divisions. You can go to any city in America, and you can pull this map up, and you will see color-coded maps of, of by race of how divided our country is, if you don't believe me. And nonetheless, even in the midst of all this, 
Sunday morning still is the most, between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., still the most segregated hours of the week. That's an embarrassment to the Church of Jesus Christ. We have to say that it's an embarrassment to the Church of Jesus Christ. Part of it stems from a lack of ignorance, a lack of awareness of how deeply divided our society is. What's another reason for the challenges to it is flat out is just opposition. Is that gospel reconciliation brings hatred. Everyone's like, no, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. Yes, the gospel is offensive. Not as offensive as gospel reconciliation. When Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he gathers together at the synagogue, he opens up the Isaiah scroll, he says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, recovery of the sight to the blind. Do you know what the very next thing it says is? It says the people marveled at him. They wondered at him. They all spoke well of him. It says, like, they're like, could this be? Is he really the Messiah? This is amazing. How wonderful, how incredible. And when they had that response, do you know what Jesus said? He said, but I have come to, the, to reach the Gentiles. I have come to fulfill the promise, which is the same reason why when, God, when there was no rain in the land of Israel, God sent Elijah to the widow of Zarephath. And why God served this other Gentile. And God reached out to this other Gentile. And why God's promise has been going to the Gentiles. And Jesus says, that is why I have come. And do you know what it says after that? It says the people rose up against him and carried carried him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. They liked the idea of having a savior. They hated the idea of racial reconciliation because of what Jesus Christ has done. Not just there. What about the Apostle Paul? As we saw, Paul says, this is why I'm an ambassador in chains. You can read the narrative of this account in Acts chapter 20 and 21. As Paul is returning to Jerusalem, after his his missions throughout Asia Minor, throughout the Mediterranean, he comes back to Jerusalem and is heard by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that Paul's coming home. And do you know what they do? They run out of the city to meet him and they say, don't you know what's going to happen if you come here? Everybody here, you've got a reputation that you are actually telling the Gentiles that the promises of God are for them. If you come back in here, there's going to be a riot. There's going to be a revolt. You're going to get murdered. And Paul says, I need to go anyway. Well, what happens? He comes in the city, and guess what there is? There's a riot, and there's a revolt, and a murder. So, I'm so riot and revolt, and they're trying to murder him. So what do they do? They gather him together. He goes before the crowds, and he gets up. And Paul shares, in Acts chapter 21, he shares God's grace through promises to Abraham, to Isaac. He shares what God has done. He shares how God is bringing this new revival and outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And it says, um, uh, and then it says, in, in midway through that, and then Paul says to them, and God has sent me to bring these truths to the Gentiles. And the next phrase was, at these words, the crowd rose up, rose up against him. Riot broke out, and they sought to kill him and sought to murder him. Why? Because of racial opposition. The idea, the idea that people of a different race are actually equal before God and equal for one another. That is why there was so much opposition in the early church. Not just simply that, but so too today, there, is interracial prefer- pre- there are inter- interracial pressures that go on within races. People say, you know, say to, a, to, to, a, to a, an African-American, why do, you, why do you go to that white church? Why do you go to that white church? People say to white people say, why, why are you friends with that black person? Why are you friends with that black person? Why are you doing that? And it goes in every different direction. Huge challenge is the flat-out opposition to the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ and the reconciliation of races. But probably the biggest challenge is apathy. 
of majority race Christians who simply don't care about this issue. And majority race Christians who can do something, but who do absolutely nothing. This summer at General Assembly, two pastors from Mississippi brought a resolution to our General Assembly. This is our annual denominational meeting calling for confession, repentance, and a resolution to engage more deeply in the gospel mission of racial reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Now, just as you understand, we as a denomination, as a Presbyterian church, excuse me, we don't operate under a hierarchy like the Pope or someone who says this is what happens and everyone's supposed to agree. We also, don't we also don't operate under a, just a simple association where there's a committee that says, this is what we're recommending, everyone can take it or leave it. We actually try to bring unity and bring everyone into unity to act in accord with this. Now, when you have 1,200 pastors and elders gathering together and you're having a business meeting with 1,200 people, all of whom have the ability to speak to an issue, it gets very, very tedious. Okay, that's that's just the reality of it when you're trying to bring unity in that in, in that situation. But we do so in order to have accountability and also to have genuine, genuine unity. And what happened this past summer is that two pastors, one who was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and another pastor who used to be the, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, who's now the chancellor for RT Reformed Theological Seminary, brought a resolution to our denomination calling for a denomination as a whole to confess, to repent, and to recommit ourselves to the work of racial reconciliation and the advancement of the gospel beyond racial barriers, beyond homogeneous, homogeneous barriers in our cultures and in our towns. For me, as I mentioned at the beginning, this was one of the most powerful workings of the Holy Spirit I've ever witnessed in my life. I, had, I was on a committee that was dealing with this. We, had, we were engaged debating on this issue and trying to figure out the best way forward in parliamentary procedure for 11 hours on this issue. That night, it went to the floor of our General Assembly um, after our worship service, and this was debated with 1,200 people. The words debate, that's just the term. The word debated for two and a half hours about how do we move forward to embrace and move forward with racial reconciliation. And in the midst of that, um, two hours into this, a pastor by the name of Jim Baird um, gets up and he speaks. And I want to show you this video clip here in just a second. This occurred um, right after the Baltimore riots were going on, and this occurred uh, a week before the, sh- the shootings in Charleston, South Carolina. And Jim Baird is probably in his mid-80s at this, mid-80s at this point. And here, and so mind you, this is in the midst of a business discussion debating an issue, but I think you can get the sense of what's going on here. This is what he said. Next. Mr. Moderator, Jim Baird, Mississippi Valley Presbytery. In 1971, 12 men were elected to form a new denomination. Take two years and form that denomination. Of those 12 men, six were ministers and six were ruling elders. All have died or left the PCA except two, Kennedy Smart and me. And I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was starting a new denomination, which we did. And I confess that I 
did not raise a finger for civil rights. I was taught with one thing, and that was to start a new denomination for the sake of the scripture, for the sake of the preservation of historic Presbyterianism, and for the furtherance of the gospel proclamation. And so I confess my sin. I'm not confessing the sin of my fathers, I'm confessing my sin. And of those 12 men, were we racist? No. But we did not do anything to help our black brethren. That's the first thing here. The second thing, 50 years later, I'm, I'm a different man, but that's beside the point. It was my understanding that this resolution would have been passed here and would have been passed with the understanding that we confess you men, but I confess personally, I did nothing. But the idea was that it would be sent down to the local churches. What you do here is not going to affect anything at the local church unless they have a chance to represent themselves. And it seems to me that we ought to, we ought to say we made a mistake. We confess our sins. I don't believe there's anybody here who hasn't said, I got problems one way or another with the racial problems in the United States. That ain't me. Oh, we got a problem. Okay. Well, we ought to do something. We're looking for a resolution. And I just assumed we would have the resolution. And by the way, it comes from Mississippi. From two men from Mississippi. And it is also my conviction that we're never going to solve this uh, the problem among us, not in Baltimore or in Chesapeake or any other place or in Chattanooga, it's going to be done in Mississippi. And there are some of us who are trying. But if we go back and go to every single congregation in the PCA and ask the session of that church and the deacons of that church to bring it before their own and decide themselves what have we done in 40 years and what should we be doing today and take it to every single congregation and then take it to the presbyteries and then bring it to the next, presbyter the next general assembly and that's what I thought it was all about. And what all the arguments have gone, I don't understand. But I thought I was going to go back to the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi and speak to the issue and say, let's do something. Have I been wrong, Mr. Moderator? After his talk, he went on for a little bit longer. Um... The issue was wrapped up, and then the moderator called for a time of prayer. <laughs> I, um, the first time I, I told Holly about this, I just started bawling. And I got through the first service. All right, here we go. <clears throat> and so what happened after this is that for the next hour, he opened up a time of prayer, and said, so we're just going to pray however long we want to pray. And for the next hour, men and pastors just got up and confessed their sins for over an hour. 
there were pastors of churches who still had slave balconies in their congregations. They weren't used as that anymore, but they never changed the architecture. And they're getting up and they're confessing their sins, the sins of their churches, the sins of the complete omission of the failure of the evangelical church and our denomination and Christian churches to do anything to bring down the dividing walls of racial division in our culture. And if there's any place it should be happening, it should be happening in the church of Jesus Christ. Because Paul writes this. He says, remember, and here's why. He says, remember, you Gentiles, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles, those of us in this room who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is it that alone can reconcile people? It is not politics. It is not political policies and school policies. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that takes each one of us who is estranged from God, enemies from him, alien to his promises, enemies and outside of this family who through the blood of Christ, he makes us members of his own household. And for those of us who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that message, that mission of reconciliation is now ours. It is now ours to carry forward because it is only the blood of Jesus that has the power to turn enemies into friends, orphans into the children of God, aliens into citizens, It's only the gospel that has the power to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, to replace hatred with forgiveness, to turn guilt into conviction and apathy into action. It is only the gospel that has the power to bring all God's children under one Lord, by one faith, through one baptism, brought together by the blood of one man, so that we would be united into one household of people of every tongue and tribe and nation, united together with one voice in one body to worship our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to reconcile. And the mystery of the gospel that has created the greatest opposition from the beginning of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles, different races, can be fully reconciled to each other as they are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You see, this is not just something for us to say, oh yeah, it does that. White Christians in particular have been doing that for centuries in America. It is not simply something for us to say, oh, we just preach Christ if we don't preach Christ like Paul preached Christ. For the mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled together through the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's a calling for us to embrace the power of the gospel and a calling for us to courageously live the mystery of the gospel. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we confess to you our own indifference. Lord, we confess to you our own prejudice that each one of us likes to be with people who are most like us. And yet, Lord, we were nothing like you. And you died so that we would be united together with you, co-heirs, so that the promise and blessings bestowed upon you would be bestowed upon us. Father, we live in a world of racial division, of racial hatred. Lord, we look around our world and we see ethnic cleansing. We see tribal groups fighting against each other. We see people of different nationalities, tribe against tribe, nation against nation, race against race, people against people, warring against one another for the elimination of each other. Father, we confess our apathy. That so many of us say, yeah, that's important, but quite frankly, we just don't care. And yet, Lord, you cared enough to tear down the dividing wall of hostility so that we could be reconciled to you, but that in so doing, you tear down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and yes, between Gentiles and Gentiles, and between any other division that would be there, Lord, you tore it down through your blood and your body, which was broken on the cross. Lord, forgive us for erecting walls that you tore down. Father, give us courage to courageously live the mystery of the gospel, that we as a church would be a foretaste of a heavenly kingdom with people of every tongue, tribe, and nation joining together and worshiping you because we celebrate the one thing that unites us, which is indeed the one thing that matters in this life, which is you, our Lord and our Savior, our reconciler and our brother. Lord, would you work your spirit and your grace and your reconciliation in us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.